Well, good morning, Restore. Um, I realize this might be a losing battle with the stand, but okay. I'm not sure what's going on. Too much WD-40, maybe? All right, I'm going to do that. That's just one more time. That's all I'm going to do. Um, good morning. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I feel like it's, it feels like a holiday, and I'm supposed to say that. I do have a confession to tell you. Uh, as of this morning, I did not know who was playing in the Super Bowl. Uh, someone asked me. I feel like as a pastor, I'm supposed to have an opinion about it. I learned this morning from one of our volunteers who's actually in the game this morning. So um, if you are new or visiting with us this morning, my name is Justin. Uh, I am one of the pastors here. Obviously, I don't like football. Um, but welcome. Oh, thank you. There we go. All right. Uh, and this morning, if you're just now joining us, we're in a series uh, that really informs for us uh, what is the uh, ethos of our church. Uh, but I would also argue or present to you that it is also the ethos of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and this is uh, what I'm talking about is Christian unity. Okay, so, so many of us have heard sermons, right? We've gone to church maybe our whole life, and we've heard lots of sermons about, uh, I, I don't know, combating sin or, or worshiping God or how we glorify him with our lives or how we follow him. Uh, but most of us have rarely considered unity, Christian unity, as actually an essence or part of the Christian life. However, when you read your Bible, right, when you read the letters of Paul, over and over and over and over again, Paul deplores his churches, be of one mind, be of one spirit, love one another in unity. Once you start to see it, uh, in, your, in your New Testament in particular, it's really hard to unsee it. This wasn't just like, a, like an added thing that they kind of put on the side. This for Paul was a foundation for how he wanted to build his churches. Be of one mind, be of one spirit, be united in your love for one another. Uh, so, so I would argue that, especially particularly in American evangelicalism, uh, this is one of the most underdeveloped, uh, underpreached kind of uh, essence or philosophies or foundations of Christian life. We rarely think, like right, when I come to church on a Sunday morning, I'm usually here to, to maybe grow my faith or learn something new about God or, or maybe try to process or understand or heal from something difficult I'm going through. But rarely ever when we walk into church on a Sunday morning do we think, hey, one of the reasons I am here is to promote and build unity with the other folks that are here. In love to promote a unity together to be of one heart and of one mind and of one spirit. Uh, but I want to argue with us this morning. I want to argue or present this morning that I believe that unity is one of the Christian, like one of the central foundations to the Christian hope. This will be, and we're doing, we're doing children's dedications this morning, but this will be uh, how you navigate like living with other Christians. Right, so, so if, if you're married, like, if I were to, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand, but like, if you think in your life right now, every Christian that you know, whether it's your spouse, whether it's somebody in your small group, uh, do you agree about everything about God together? Like, is there anybody in your life that you would say, I am 100% on the same page about God as you? 
right? If anybody's going to raise their hand, I would argue it's because you're lying. Uh, like there's just, there's nobody, even your, like your closest relationships, will you be able to say, I agree about God and what his will is for us here, what we're supposed to do here, 100% with you. We've never disagreed. And part of what happens in marriages This can happen in families. This can happen in parental relationships with children. This can happen in relationships in the church. Is part of what happens is as those differences start to develop, as we start to find nuances in our faith, we have one of two options. There's really two options. There's one, I can make an enemy out of you. Right, like I can start a narrative of you're not as faithful as I am. You don't see God the same way I do. You're not as scriptural or as biblical or are as faithful or whatever. You don't love him the same way I do. Right, that's one narrative. That's one way you can go. The other way, which is Christian unity, this is practice of Christian unity, this development of unity that is led by God's spirit allows us in those nuances to say, I see things differently, understand things differently. My heart might even be longing for something different here. And yet you and I are united. We follow and worship the same Jesus here. We do not have to make enemies out of one another. I would argue that most, most division in churches, not just like inner church, but also between churches, isn't actually because one church has a bunch of bad doctrine and the other church somehow got everything right. I'm not saying you can't have bad doctrine. I'm not saying you can't have bad theology. We work really hard here to try and create good, healthy theology that is reflective of Christian truth. Like, I'm not arguing that. But what I am suggesting is most of the division that we seem to understand and experience, particularly in our church life, I think comes not because we have, like, somebody over here somehow got everything right, and this group just was like, well, I don't know, we're just, I don't care, let's just be wrong about it all. (laughs) It's because we have an actual, we have an underdeveloped sense of Christian unity, particularly in American church. We understand our faith, like, almost primarily in individualistic terms. This is, by the way, is for those of you who are parents, as your children grow, how you will keep from alienating them. Because as they grow and mature in their own faith, there's going to be differences and nuances from your faith. And so your options are, we can start alienating one another here. I can start in suggesting or insinuating, particularly as your parent, that like you're on the wrong path here. Or we can begin to explore and understand Christian unity and how this actually fits together. And so what, what I mean by Christian unity, what we do or how we understand that is, is this. It's something called the Nicene Creed. This is how we've developed our doctrine at Restore. But if you've never heard of the Nicene Creed, this isn't going to be a history lesson. I'm not going to walk you through all of that. But the Nicene Creed was developed by the church about 300 years after the death of Christ. Uh, and this document was, was, the, was the first and last time that the church came, the universal church, north and south, east and west, came together and said, what are the things that as Christians unite our hope? The things that we can always agree on. It is the document, so the church produced this document, it's called the Nicene Creed, and it is the only official church document in circulation, even today, that Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants can agree on. It is the only three things that these three large branches of Christendom, of Christianity, as different as as they are from one another, this is the document that all three of them would affirm in their churches this morning. 
or around the world this week. And so what we do when we think of Christian unity, here's what, here's what we're defining as Christian unity. It's looking at the things that as Christians we can always agree on. This is a foundation for our faith and the hope that we have. So as there is nuances, as there are differences, instead of making an enemy out of you, I can still figure out how to make, be a friend to you. Right? We serve a God who makes friends out of his enemies. It's Romans, Romans 5. This is an imperative task of the Christian. How do I make friends out of my enemies? And so this morning in particular, what we're going to be in this portion of the Nicene Creed uh, is defining the Holy Spirit. So what the the Nicene Creed does uh, is it looks at these big kind of, think of them as like big picture, what does it mean to have the hope of Jesus in your life? All right, so we've, we've walked through the creed. It does things like it defines who God the Father is, who Jesus the Son is, these large things that are vitally important to our faith, which as you try to navigate your faith with your spouse, with your child, with your small group, with your parents, with whoever it is you're trying to navigate your faith, these are the things that you can look at them and say, we might disagree on all of these other issues, but look, we still have this. This means we're on the same team. We are not enemies out of one another. We don't make enemies out of each other. And this portion of the Nicene Creed, uh, we're looking at defining what I think is also, uh, so if, 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 I were to ask, if I were to say like Christian unity is one of the most underdeveloped uh, things taught in, in church, the Holy Spirit is probably one of our most underdeveloped uh, members of the Trinity. So when we think of being Christians, uh, we often think of this primarily as like we follow Jesus. I'm not saying that's not true. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying this morning. But the Holy Spirit is now, Jesus says in John, hey, it's better for me that I go. Listen to that. It's better for me that I go because the advocate, the Holy Spirit will come. And so Jesus himself is saying from now on, like there's going to be an advocate. There's going to be another who's going to guide you, who's going to be your advocate, your foundation, the one who cultivates and builds a Christian out of you is the Spirit. And so the Nicene Creed defines the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is this, the Lord, okay, I'm going to stop right there, the Lord. Most of us, and I'll probably do, I've practiced all week, and I'm still probably going to do it this morning. Most of us, when we refer to the Spirit, we refer to it as an it, like this uh, unpersonal, I don't know, spiritual force. But the first thing the Nicene Creed wants us to do is the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity, right? At Restore, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons of one essence. We worship them as one God. The Spirit is God, to be worshiped as God. And this is what the Creed says. The Lord, the giver of life, he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. So here's what I'm going to propose this morning as we walk through the Holy Spirit. Is when I, I were to ask you this morning, hey, what is God's will for your life? What would you say? If I were to ask you this morning, how do you determine God's will for your life? What would you say? It's a pretty common pastoral discussion I have, have with people. Like they ask the question, do I, marry this person? Do I not marry this person? Do I take this job? Do I not take this job? Do I leave this job? Do I not leave this job? Right? Do I, do I, do, do I move here? Or do I not move here? 
Like we often think uh, of God's will in our life uh, as often as like uh, forks in the road. Like we're making a bunch of different decisions. We got to figure out which the right one is. Okay, we often view God's will for our life a lot like we view like making financial decisions, right? For those of you who invest, right? I have two options here, two stock options. Which one do I take? Which is the right one? Right, usually what we're asking in that moment is which one gives me the right payoff, right? What's the, what's the least amount of loss and what's the most amount of gain? And so for most of us, as we move through our Christian life and we try to interpret God's will for our life and understand God's will for our life, we often understand God's will is sort of like a dichotomy of choices that we have to make. God wants me to do this and not do this, and I've got to, I've got to figure out how to hear from him. The challenge with that, I want to argue that 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 is not, by the way, that's not saying that God doesn't have wills for us here. That's not necessarily what I'm saying, but I am going to argue this morning that I actually think we primarily set ourselves up for failure and frustration, which is why I have so many meetings about that, right? We feel frustrated because you're like, I can't, I've got two choices in front of me, and I don't know which one God wants me to take. And it's a little bit like trying to listen to God's will is a little bit like wearing earbuds in my ears at a concert. I can see everything going on. Like, I know it's there, but somehow I can't internalize it. It's not getting in here. I can't hear it. Like, I know he's got something, but for some reason, I can't, like, I can't decipher what it is. I'm looking at the signs. I'm looking at all the ways that he might be telling me what to do, and I, maybe that's from God. Maybe that's not. I don't know, right? And it gets confusing for us. I want to argue this morning that the Spirit is actually the answer here to this question that we often ask of, like, what is God's will for my life? How do I understand God's will? <coughs> Excuse me. And God's will for your life, I want, to, I want to take the position this morning, is not so much how, how it guides your decisions as much as it is who you are becoming. It's not so much of like God's like, okay, well, there's two jobs. Let me, tell you, like, let me send some signs so you'll know which one you'll be happiest in. Or I'm trying to marry this person and God's like, oh, I don't know, I'm gonna give you some signs whether you're walking into trouble here or not. Like there's not like, he's not like, that's kind of how we want to interpret God's will. But rather when Paul writes of the spirit to his churches, what he writes more of is he's, he's not so much interested in so like figure out what you're supposed to do with your life. It's more about let you see, I want you to see who God is making you to become. And from that, yeah, our decisions flow out of that are changed, but Paul's primary concern is, I want you to see what the Spirit is creating in you, how he is cultivating and changing and shaping you. So Paul will write, uh, we're going to be, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. Uh, The words will also be behind me on the screen, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, We're going to jump around a little bit, but this is going to be 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verse 9. Paul says this, uh, and he'll imply uh, that there is something that the Spirit gives us. It comes from God. There's something here he like wants to show you, see you, reveal to you. And Paul will imply, but also most of us uh, kind of exist like in and out of being able to hear it or not. He's going to refer to that as one side is the flesh. I mean, one side is receptive to it. Uh, and then there's the flesh, which is not receptive to it. Okay, so starting in verse 9, Paul says this, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, 
what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deeper things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has given us freely. Let me pray for us briefly, and we'll, and we'll jump into the text this morning. Well, Father, um, I have to admit just the inadequacy that I feel um, and even trying to explain such a beautiful mystery is the gift of your spirit. <laughs> so, Father, would you have mercy on me? Um, would you have mercy on us um, as we try to understand you and your will for our life and who you're making us to be? Um, Father, we can feel pretty confused by that. Um, so, Father, would you help us? We need you. Father, would you show us how to love you this morning? Would you show us how to love one another? We need that as well. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so Paul will start by saying, hey, there's, there's a spirit that comes, and it is revealing something that no one else sees, right? There no mind is conceived, no eye has seen, and you were being gifted or given something. Okay, so that, that's his first uh, implication here is uh, this isn't something that you, because you were spiritual enough or moral enough or clever enough, like come up with on your own, right? So implicit within the way that Paul talks about the Spirit is also implicit, is, is a real sense of humility, which I also argue is the foundation of unity, right? Humility is this point of view of like, here's, here's what I can see. I may not be right. This is the essence of humility. But Paul is implying here, hey, look, God's revealing something to you, and it's not necessarily because somehow you guys were more clever than everybody else or more spiritual than everyone else. God didn't look down like, there's an A-team. Let's show them, right? Like, none of those guys are struggling. Like, let's reveal it to them. What Paul starts by saying is the work of God in your life is not going to be something that you would see or understand before it starts to work. Like his work in your life is nothing but sheer grace. It is him bestowing and giving you his goodness. Not because you were moral enough or clever enough or spiritual enough or, or on the inside in some kind of way. And interestingly, we're not going to do it all of that this morning um, because I know you guys want to go watch the Super Bowl. Uh, but like most of Paul's discussions, when he talks about spirit, he also has to jump into, let, like, let me help you understand, you guys think you're in the in crowd, but really the only reason that you've been invited into this is because of the mercy of God, not because of some qualification that you had or some sort of spiritual descendants that you have. These conversations are generally surrounded around Paul's discussions of the spirit. He wants to imply like, you, like the work that's going to start is something that you have not been able to conceive of previously until God in his mercy and in his goodness and in his grace revealed it to you and started showing it to you or gifted it to you.
so what is it, right, that, that Paul's, what is it that he's actually giving us? What is it that's coming from God? Okay, this, this is the question we're asking this morning, right? So we started the question of like, well, how do we discern God's will in our life? Well, I want to argue that it's primarily through the work of the Spirit in our life. But what is it that he's doing? How is it that he's working that actually helps us do this? So when you walk out today and you face a, a variety of complex issues through life, through parenting, through work, through marriage, whatever it is that you're facing, how do I, like, what is it that's coming from God that's going to help me in those decisions? Because right now we're off to basically, I can't understand it. Right? Paul's starting off with, you cannot conceive of this without the mercy of God. He goes on to say, uh, starting in, in verse uh, 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And here's where Paul is going to land with all of this. These next words, listen to them closely. But we have the mind of Christ. So we are given something that comes from God that ultimately creates in us the mind of Jesus. This is what Paul's getting at here. It's forming in us and cultivating us in us from the inside out. Someone that looks like Jesus, that loves like Jesus. Okay, so um, we, often when we think of the Spirit, particularly, and I understand it restore, there's a variety of traditions that you guys come from. Some of you come from charismatic backgrounds. Others of you come from more evangelical or Bible church backgrounds um, or high church backgrounds. And so um, I, I want to say a couple of things, just caveats here. <laughs> One is we often think of the Spirit as, as something that comes like periodically, like it descends on us. And then we get super spiritual, or we, you know, like there's, there's speaking in tongues, or there's great healings, or there's prophecies. Now, I am not saying that those things do not happen. Restore our official position as we acknowledge spiritual gifts. If that's your tradition, that's for, I want to respect that and acknowledge that that is absolutely a way that the Spirit manifests himself. Okay, there's nothing false or wrong or invalid in some of that. Okay? Uh, but uh, we often think of, particularly in our circles, is the Spirit is something that like kind of descends on us periodically. Like, we get gifted with it. We become super spiritual for a moment, right? Uh, we're filled with the Holy Spirit is a term that sometimes people use. Now, Paul will actually uh, take the position in Corinthians that this happens. This is what, how the Spirit will actually work among you. Some of you are gifted in prophecy. Some of you are going to be gifted in healing. Some of you are going to be gifted with tongues. Like, there's going to be some actual, real, like, spiritually powerful manifestations of the Spirit He's not invalidating that. He's not saying that that's wrong. However, he does say this uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Here's what he's saying. Uh, he says, eagerly desire these gifts, right? Eagerly desire the greater gifts. When he's using that word, in the, and we can't read all of that because we don't have time this morning, 
But he's talking about spiritual gifts, the prophecy, speaking in tongues. Eagerly desire these things. But then he does say this, and yet, I will show you the most excellent way. I will show you the most excellent way. Okay, here's, where, here's where he's driving home his point again. You're becoming the mind of Christ. Uh, and this is in 1 Corinthians 12. And then he immediately jumps into 1 Corinthians 13, which is a passage, even if you've never been in church very long, you've probably heard this, this, this verse before. If you've watched Wedding Crashers, you've heard this verse before. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no records of wrong. We, we think of that list, and actually, I refuse to, to preach that passage at weddings. Um, sorry if I do your wedding. Like, just know that's not, you're not getting that. Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn ruined it for me. Like, I just, I can never, like, preach that and not see them taking bets on it. But putting that aside, the real reason I don't actually preach about that is because we've heard that over and over and over again, and we think that this implies to romantic love only. But Paul's not speaking of romantic love in this at all. He's speaking to you guys and me. He's speaking to the church. And he's speaking, of, right, so all of this foundation, and I know we're moving quick this morning, but all of this, the Spirit has come. It's giving you something. It's opening. He's open. See, I did it right there. It. He is opening your eyes. He's driving this, this point, and he's landing here in 1 Corinthians 13. So what is it that the Spirit is giving you? Here's what he says. If I speak in tongues of men of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, he's, he's saying these words after having a discussion on spiritual gifts. So he's not being sentimental. He's making an argument. If I have prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Here's what the Spirit is opening the reality of our life to. It's love. This thing that, that we sometimes struggle to understand and the world doesn't see. It's not these deep mysteries. Prophecy is a beautiful thing. Paul doesn't say that we shouldn't prophesy. It's not healing. It's not these deeper revelations of the Spirit. What Paul wants them to see is the work of the Spirit in your life is cultivating in you a heart of love. The mind of Christ Verse John 4, God is love. John's not being sentimental with the way he expresses that as a theological statement that we need to unpack and understand and digest. Jesus is the manifestation of God's love. The Spirit in your life isn't working so much to show you how to make the right financial decisions or which home to buy or which job to take. What the Spirit is doing in your life is regardless of which job you take, regardless of which home you buy, regardless of which person you marry, that he cultivates in you a spirit of Jesus, of love, of patience, of gentleness, of meekness. This is the primary purpose of the Spirit in your life. And Paul says this isn't something that like comes and goes. That does, ha like, and again, I want to, like, he does not say that these expressions or validations of the Spirit are not 
untrue or invalid or unspiritual or unchristian in any way. That's not the point that I'm making this morning. But what Paul wants to say here is the primary way that the Spirit manifests itself, the primary work is himself, the primary way that the Spirit works in your life, the primary gift that has come from God that he has given you is love. So if I'm prophesying, if I have faith that moves mountains, but I am not loving, then I have missed it. This is the full manifestation of the Spirit in your life. So going back to that, that question uh, that I asked you earlier, how do you, how do you know God's will for your life? Well, I actually think that you have a lot more freedom to create and to marry and to grow and to take jobs than you realize you do. Because Paul starts most of his discussions on the Spirit also with freedom. Galatians 5, Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use, and he's, by the way, he's having this discussion on the eve of a group of people that are like, oh man, we're following God, but now we got to understand all the nuances of, of everything. Like, we got to understand what kind of foods God wants us to eat, what kind of holidays we can and can't celebrate, uh, right? Like, what kind of traditions we can and can't have. He's writing on the eve of, a, of this kind of discussion, uh, and he says this, you were called to be free. God's not as concerned about those things as you think he is. There's freedom here. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. What Paul is getting at here, what he's driving at with all of this, and then he goes on, by the way, in this famous other passage about the Spirit, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. So he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness. This is what he says right before he gives you the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what's the first fruit that he gives you? This fruit of the Spirit is love. This is God's, this is how God is gifting you. This is how he is cultivating you. So I asked you at the beginning, how do you know God's will for your life? It's not so much... Uh, making the right decisions. I mean, make good decisions, right? I'm saying, so it doesn't matter what, where you, who you marry or what job you have. Or, but rather, it's to recognize that we have some real freedom in Jesus. In the end, it's about how am I becoming more loving? Um, if, you've got, if you're dedicating children this morning, by the way, um, this is your cue. You can go grab them real quick as we move into this next beautiful part of the service. But uh, I want to... I want to close um, by saying this. Most of us, when we look at, hey, how do I know that God's involved in my life? What you'll do, what most of us do, what I do often, is we give kind of a play-by-play -play account of how recent events have unfolded. If I look at my life over the last year, uh, where do I see God showing up? Am I making more money than I was last year at this time? Do I have more friends than I did? Like, am I more successful? at this point than I was last year at this time, right? Like we, we, we look for uh, signs and wonders, so to speak, like these tangible manifestations of, oh, this is how I know God's on my corner. My circumstances are working out favorably. I think this will actually inevitably sets us up for failure in our Christian walk because it makes our faith entirely dependent on circumstances. It makes the way that we follow God dependent on our circumstances. It makes our evaluation of his faithfulness to us and his goodness to us based primarily on whether or not life's working out the way we want it to. 
but rather what Paul's suggesting here is this new secret, right? What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no mind has conceived, this new secret that's coming from God is love. You want to look back at your life a year from now or look back on the last year and ask the question, how do I know that God's been with me? Am I a more loving person than I was last year at this time? Am I more merciful? Am I more compassionate? Am I more gentle? These are the, this is the Paul, again, I want to go back to, this is Paul's primary manifestation uh, of God's will for your life. This is how you know that you're in God's will. This is when you're able to look back and say, I see, or I can start to hear love. Right? So back to that early analogy, most of us try to understand God's will like, with, like we're at a concert, but we have earplugs in. We can see the music being played. Maybe we can feel it, right? If this, we're close to the speakers, or we can sort of, sort of see it. But as we become more loving and those earbuds come out, we begin to see the beauty and the power of love. This is the hidden thing of God that Paul's speaking of here, the mystery that's being revealed. The world is to work, is to grow and live off love, off mercy, off compassion. And when we want to see God working, that's what we look at. Right? That's what we look for. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. When we pray that God would be with us or bless us or, I don't know, have mercy on us, this is what we're praying for. This is the manifestation of his spirit, the gift that he's given us that is cultivating in us a heart like his, that Paul says, the mind of Christ. This is a mind of love uh, and a heart of love. Let me pray for us, uh, and I'm going to invite Nicole and our families to come up as we um, get ready to dedicate one of our own little ones uh, to to a God of love this morning. (coughs) Father, would you be with us uh, this morning? As we try to understand your will for our life, it's it's difficult. We get discouraged. We want to hear a direct revelation from you. Maybe a prophecy. Maybe somebody just comes down and says, this is what God wants you to do. But God, you are showing us who you want us to be. Not so much what you want us to do, but who you want us to be. And who we are then from that flows out to how we live and what we do. So God, would you make us a people that have your mind, the mind of Christ. Would you give us your gift of your spirit? Would you help us to walk humbly with one another? We love you. We need you. We pray all of these things, Father, in your name. Amen.